You're about to hear my conversation with the head of our global resources team, Benoit Jouet. We talk all about energy security in light of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, onshore, infrastructure, and how we can achieve our goals of climate change. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be back with Benoit Gervais. Benoit leads our resource team and, frankly, is one of the best minds in Canada when it comes to all things resources. Benoit, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having us, Matthew. I've uh, invited you back uh, specifically because of the Russia and Ukraine conflict. Uh, And certainly this has had uh, fairly dramatic impacts on commodity prices of all types. Uh, So maybe I'll start by just asking you, what do you think the impact ultimately will be from this Russian and Ukraine conflict to commodity prices, uh, both uh, metals and and, um, natural gas and oil? Yeah, for sure. Uh, Russia is certainly a major producer of oil, gas, many metals, fertilizers. Um, And we're at a time here when supplies and inventories were low. There was already extra pressure being put on the whole supply chain for commodities. And now we have um, a difficult player, if you want, that has to redirect its commodities around the world by boats and by train um, on an already strained logistical uh, problem. So what we will see is just higher prices to make up in the near term for this lack of supply. But eventually those pounds of metals, those barrels of oil, those uh, BCF of gas, although that one is a bit tougher to move, will find their way into places where the buyers are a little contentious, a little less contentious, sorry, right. such as China, in India, and uh, they in turn will make room and send out perhaps their own barrels or their own fertilizers, uh, eventually making their way to the Western world at a higher price and with delayed delivery. And I think that's what we see today in the price of oil, for instance, a very transparent market where you see the near-term price of oil, we call it first month delivery versus the 12 month delivery. Uh, typically you pay in good times, a, re- a small premium, say a couple of dollars for having the delivery today versus 12 months out. Okay. And when times are quite tight, you know, five to $10. Now we're at a record high, $30 for getting it delivered to you today versus 12 months out. So that gives you an idea of the scale. But the commodities, the market says, and I think we agree with the market, is that the commodities will find their way into the global market. I see. So it's really, if I can interpret this, this is really redefining supply chains um, as as uh, the commodities from Russia displaces, displaces commodities uh, from other nations. Is that sort of what you're getting to? Essentially. So all those commodity tons are making their way, albeit slowly, in a very inefficient way into the Western world. Great. 
Um, maybe we, we can uh, talk a little bit about the impact on inflation uh, as a whole based on these uh, commodity prices going up uh, and what sounds like you're, you're thinking it's going to be a sustained uh, level up. Um, tell me what your, your thought is on inflation uh, and, and what your expectations are there. So if we step back a little bit here, Matthew, and think about where we were before we had this invasion in Ukraine, we had a, a relief rally that was well underway, a recovery from multi-decade lows for commodities after a 10-year bear market or so for many of the commodities. Um, and I think the world had signaled to those industries that they were not needed. And very few reinvested in their own business so we saw supply shrink, the, the projects that were underway got completed, and many said never again will we invest in those projects given how low prices were. But in the meantime, what we saw is that demand kept on growing. The world got bigger. The world wants to be powered and fed. Right. Anyway, perhaps under different conditions today than they were before. And when I'm talking about certain conditions, we want to de deal with good actors. We want to deal with responsible actors. We want to reduce emissions. We want jobs here in the Western world, not in those uh, places where perhaps um, they don't have as high regard for human rights, for instance, sure. or they don't pay a fair wage. So you put it all together, it became more difficult to grow supply as we added more conditions. Demand kept growing. And obviously, prices recover after COVID. But all of those trends were well underway before COVID and got amplified again here with the invasion of Ukraine as we realized that perhaps Russia wasn't a party we wanted to rely on. Right. So maybe, maybe we'll stick on that point and, and talk about sort of bad actors, quote unquote, um, and that produce a lot of the commodities, uh, Russia being one of them. Um, we hear in, in the news in the news the Biden administration uh, may open talks with Iran, Venezuela, uh, other bad actors. How important is this concept of energy security to the way that you view the world? I think that we had given historically a premium for producers that were acting locally, and I think. It was perceived that uh, for many investors that dealing with commodities in general gave their portfolio a bad flavor, hmm. a bad taste to investments. And most of the dollar, as we know, are invested in the Western world, not in emerging markets. And one way to deal with that problem was to avoid carbon altogether. And we perfectly know there's a big difference between decarbonizing a portfolio in decarbonizing the world, which is the objectives that we have today. Sure. So if you want to decarbonize the world, I think that you have to be investing in the better actors rather than avoiding carbon altogether. So being a local producer and, and having shares listed in the Western exchanges led to a suppression of your multiple, people were selling you. Hmm. And now I think slowly the crowd is changing their mind on this and saying, you know what, maybe I should be buying the better one and continue to encourage the better actor in order to execute any decarbonization by what is going to be a very tight timeline. Right. Um, 
I recall the last time I had you on the podcast, we talked about this concept of sort of commodities not trading at the same price. So commodities kind of decommodifying um, and, and that being a function of perhaps the carbon intensity of production. Um, it sounds like you're adding a, a new lens of this, which is sort of um, call it regionalization or, or regional players. Um, how, how much do you see that the greening of the economy um, the idea of uh, how um, how the production, like how you actually get oil out of the ground, how you actually produce commodities, how much of a price difference will that lead to, do you expect? Well, it really depends on which commodity, because uh, you are correct. If you put this new criteria around supply and demand, which says, I want the better actor, I want to favor local job, I want people that are reliable and dependable on, then you're restraining yourself to certain suppliers and the demand goes up for those local, call it favorite or preferred partners and supply hasn't gone up yet. Not yet anyways. So if we talked about aluminum, then there's only so many tons. In fact, there's about less than a third of the world aluminum that's produced with a fairly low carbon footprint and two thirds has a very high carbon footprint. So now if everybody, or at least the Western world that's willing to spend extra on this objective is trying to switch to this preferred partner, then prices can go up a lot. But in general terms, all of that supply has to go up because we, we let's remind ourselves that we're trying to achieve something that hasn't been done before, which is we wanna tackle climate change. And they said it would be self-defeating if we tackled climate change and we didn't deal with income inequality, didn't deal with infrastructure, uh, and we weren't going to power and feed the world at the same time, mm. a world that is growing every day. So we need to achieve all of those criteria and still achieve climate change. So to give you an idea of the magnitude of what we're trying to achieve, we're trying to cut about half of the emissions by 2035. Simple math, 40 gigaton is what we emit today. We want to get to 20 gigaton and call it two business cycle. Right. There are a couple levers, pretty obvious couple levers. One, stop using coal power. Switch that coal power to a renewable um, with some gas grid, we'll call it the clean grid. And we're going to be growing this world between now and 2035, call it 40% more. And that's a somewhat reduced growth rate than we've seen in the past 10 years. So you're going to need to deliver quite a bit more power and do it cleaner. And for this, you're going to need a lot more copper to that go into those wind turbines mm -hmm. and those solar panels. You'll also need natural gas to stabilize the grid. You put all of those numbers together, you need to double the copper market. You need to grow the gas market by 50%. Mm. And if you do that, which is the biggest bucket for reducing emissions, you'll reduce emission by about five gigaton. So quarter of what we're trying to target over that same period. We said 40 down to 20, which is a 20 reduction 
and a quarter of that would be this cleaner power going forward. Right. Um, well, let's maybe stop on that for just a second. Uh, you, you, you referenced stopping coal being sort of the primary object, objective there um, and uh, bigger investment in renewables, natural gas, um, and, uh, and renewables requiring copper. Um, I'm curious about the grid as a whole. If I think about the area of the world that's done the most as far as uh, investing in uh, renewable within the grid, I often think of Europe, I think of Germany in, in particular. And if you think about the starting the conversation with the Russia-Ukraine, we know that Germans are uh, importing a lot of natural gas from Russia. So what, what options do um, countries like that have or what options in general do we have to actually uh, achieve this goal of, of getting off of coal um, and, and reducing overall emissions? Most of those options take a lot of money, like a lot of time and a lot of commodities. And I think that if you want to be practical about this, you want to do uh, this in a measured way, not in a purist way. And I think the purest way would be to spend an infinite amount of money on renewable. But as we know, the sun isn't shining all the time sure. and the wind isn't blowing all the time. So you can imagine during a day that you're either with wind or power and you have to make sure that the, the, sorry, the solar, and you have to make sure that the sun is there at the right time of the day, because if the sun is there and it, the, 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 the sky is clear at 6 PM at night, not very helpful. Right. So you need something to complement it. You could have a nuclear plant, but it's tough to turn on and off. Hmm. Ideally, you would have a power dam, a hydro dam that you could open and close. Not, not many of those dams are available today. Sure. Not enough anyways. Next one would be to have a coal plant that you can turn on and off. Not very efficient and not very clean. Hmm. So we found that the best possible option today, at least to 2035, would be to have a gas plant mm. to cut the emission as a whole. The grid can reduce its emission per kilowatt hour reduced by 80% or more. It's not 100%. So you have to be practical and realistic when you're dealing with such large problems under a very tight timeline. Fair enough. Um, when we talk about uh, um, the reduction and, and the, the goal of getting, you said, get, getting rid of uh, 20 gigatons of uh, um, emissions uh, by 2035, we, we had talked about uh, replacing coal. Uh, what else does uh, the society have to do? What kind of infrastructure does society need to build in order to uh, achieve that, that continued reduction? Yeah, the other pieces of the puzzle, Matt, here uh, could be one, the electric car. I think it's a well-publicized idea. Unfortunately, the order of magnitude of that reduction is just too small. We have to be reminded that manufacturing those electric cars also emits sure. quite a bit more than the traditional vehicle. Mm. To give you an idea, a, over a lifetime, a regular car will emit four tons. An electric car 
including the manufacturing and obviously powering your car with some electricity, which isn't perfect, which will be much better. But let's assume that we have 2040 or 2035 types of power at a lower emission. You'll still be emitting 1.5 ton over the lifetime of that car. Okay. Okay, so we want to reduce, say, uh, the emissions by converting the entire fleet today. Then you would be reducing by 2.5 tons per car, and there's a billion car today. There may be more in the future, but there's a billion car today. So if you changed over the whole fleet, you would be reducing the emissions by 2.5 tons, roughly speaking. And we said... We're targeting 20 right. gigaton by 2035, right? So if we changed over the whole fleet, it will, would only be a fraction of what we're trying to do. The next thing that we can do is afforestation. Hmm. That means we go into places, and Canada has a lot of those places, and I think the U.S. too, and Europe, where land is underutilized. And in, in instead of converting them to some other industrial use, we can simply plant trees, manage the forest, produce lumber, use it into construction. But I think you have to get those uh, trees to maturity. In the meantime, we feed those trees with the CO2. And there's about 15 gigaton of potential around the world. If wow. we were to afforest the world. Uh, so that's a big chunk. I don't know what's the timeline around afforestation because it involves many countries and many regions, but that's a very large part of the solution. Mm -hmm. And the last part is the industrial revolution that we need to do. We need to retool industries so that they use more efficiently many of their inputs. So if you make steel, you need carbon. And I think that windmills use a lot of steel. Sure. Infrastructure in general use a lot of steel. So making steel in the same way we used to is not going to, to work if we want to achieve those objectives. To give you an idea, we talked about aluminum producing 25 tons per ton of aluminum when it comes to carbon. That's a lot. That's self-defeating. So perhaps we should, one, turn over to those local producers in Canada, which producing five tons per ton. Right there, we made some savings and encourage those. And we can recycle mm. steel, we can recycle aluminum, and that's even less than producing it uh, 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 from, from scratch. So those types of industrial revel uh, um, events, are going to be the one we're watching for and will lead to retooling and some of the onshoring. So if we go back to the key teams, mm -hmm. we said we want to uh, power the world, we want to feed the world, and we want to do this while achieving those objectives. I think we're at the confluence of many of those thematics, which is we want to deal with emissions, we want to deal with income inequality. That means we, we need to bring jobs back here in Canada. We want better infrastructure because we know transit, schools and hospitals will lead to a better society. And we want reliable and conscientious 
partners when we're going to do all of this. That's great, Ben Bob. Um, I guess uh, maybe my final question here, when I think about uh, it from an investment point of view, uh, and I know that's, uh, that's what you do all day, uh, but if you're an investor, uh, commodity prices have been exceedingly volatile uh, in history. Uh, and that has led a lot of investors to maybe shy away from commodities. We also know that over the past 10 years, the uh, percentage of allocation to energy uh, in the major indices in the world has come down substantially. Canada is a bit of an outlier, but still our, our exposure to energy has come down substantially in the last 10 years. So what advice would you give to investors on trying to take advantage of some of these themes that you just talked about and how to, how to incorporate that into their portfolio? It really comes down to getting the trend right. I think there is, in fact, lots of volatility in this business, and that has kept many investors away from this uh, sector. And I think this this juncture here is is not very different. I think many people, because of the volatility, have just simply avoided the whole question. If you can make peace with those thematics around climate change, infrastructure, onshoring, income inequalities, and think that you want to achieve all of those objectives between 2035 and 2050, that gives you two or more business cycles. And, 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 and the impact will be tremendous on commodities, in particular, good commodity producers like the ones we have here in North America and Europe. But then you'll see a copper market that's likely to double and a gas market that's likely to go up by 50% over a two business cycle. Those are the kinds of ingredients that should over time re-rate the industry and have people think of resources and then instrumental into this retooling that will take many decades. And hence, I think that the terminal value of those businesses isn't zero like many I thought it would be not that long ago. So when it comes to the, the the potential performance, you look at where the multiples are today for those businesses, and what are the tailwinds in those businesses, and you have if you have some times on your hands, I think you have a good chance of getting the trend right. Got it. Um, so that that's makes the case for uh, adding sort of direct commodity exposure. You sound very bullish on the longer term case uh, for for commodities as a whole. Uh, makes a lot of sense uh, from from my perspective. I'm curious. We, we had touched on inflation as well. Um, what's your take on inflation? You know, are commodities a good hedge against inflation? Uh, and also, what else can you do within the portfolio as a whole? Perhaps even outside of the resource sector. So. Um, in, inflation is a problem for many people uh, in, in that many of the assets that people own are paper, what we call the paper assets, which tend to have a negative correlation with inflation. When inflation rises, the value of your bonds is going down, at least your purchasing power right. is going down and your portfolio is slowing you down. Uh, when it comes to your retirement objectives. Many other businesses also, when it comes to inflation, can struggle to pass on some of those costs. And hence, their margins are reduced, uh, their multiples come down. 
And then finally, the third problem with inflation is it tends to come with higher interest rates. So if you're trying to uh, value the future value of, uh, of earnings, then the same earnings stream at a higher interest rate is worth a lot less. So multiples tend to come down for growth companies. They're the most affected. In fact, well, all assets see their value come down. Now, the question is, what can you offset this with? Well, if you can have assets that can appreciate at inflation rates or better, uh, then, then in a sense, you're inserting a, a new variable in your portfolio that plays into your favor. So commodities at the moment are a big contributor to this inflation. And many people are probably underexposed to this pro-inflation bet. Great. Well, Benoit, I really appreciate you taking the time to walk through that. Uh, your insights are always uh, appreciated. Thank you very much. Thank you, Matthew. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 